0: We really are focused on prioritizing those species that are about to blink out. We must make sure that on our watch, that doesn't happen. Welcome to the first episode of
1: this new series of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith. I'm a rewilding enthusiast and activist from Britain. Today I'm chatting with Penny Becker, who leads an incredible organization named Island Conservation. And the clue is in the name. What island conservation does is simply remove invasive vertebrate species from island ecosystems. Now, overwhelmingly, extinctions that have taken place in the last few centuries have taken place on islands. And more often than not, it's because of invasive species like rats, cats, dogs, goats, donkeys, you name it. And removing these species from an island ecosystem possibly offers the biggest bang for your buck in conservation or rewilding terms than any other intervention that we could possibly be talking about. So I'm really excited to chat to Penny, not least given I've just been invited to join the Advisory Board of Island Conservation, which is a huge honor, and I'm very excited about that. Thank you, Penny, for being with me today.
0: We're so thrilled to have you on our advisory council, Ben. Thank you for having me.
1: Penny, when did you join Island Conservation?
0: I joined Island Conservation a little over three years ago um, in 2020, just before the pandemic. Before that, I was working at uh, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, so the state wildlife organization here in Washington State. I live just near Seattle. And then before that, I was uh, living in South Africa and uh, working on African wild dog reintroduction. So again, rewilding is very close to my heart throughout my career. And before that, I was in Tanzania working on coastal issues and also on uh, wildebeest outside of Serengeti.
1: Amazing. So you've been working in nature throughout your entire career. Tell Thank us a you. little bit about the origins of island conservation, because it, it to most people, it sounds quite niche. Like who yeah. thought this up and who, who built the organization originally?
0: So the organization was funded by two university professors Bernie Tershey and Don Kroll, who are at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And they are passionate um, seabird biologists and and ecologists. And they had spent a lot of their time on different islands studying seabirds and seeing populations of seabirds dwindling and uh, really noticing over and over and over again that the threats to these populations and these species that were blinking out were largely invasive species and it didn't seem like enough was being done to uh, address this so in the early 90s they put together what now became island conservation and um you know we're 20 i think 8 years in now and going really strong we have an organization of about 47 people across the globe uh, working on preventing extinctions, helping island communities, and trying to bring back these ecosystems and species.
1: And at the very beginning, the organization was set up really as as an organization to do stuff. Uh, It wasn't about lobbying for policy change and educating people. It was about finding islands and actually carrying out the eradications. How did that go in the early days before your time?
0: There was a lot of uh, starting small, starting on islands that were far away from humans, from understanding the biological uh, mechanisms and processes of the invasives themselves Was really important, right? So now today, when you look at the work that island conservation does, there is extreme amount of planning and a lot of work that has to be done before you actually can implement any of these actions. And so that early work understanding when is the biological window in which these things have to be done for them to be effective and to get to zero invasive species left? When do you have to time these things to ensure that you don't have any impacts on non-target species that you're trying to actually protect? And how do you uh, move forward in a way that allows all of the Processes that need to happen with local managers and working on the social aspects of it, right? So, tons have been learned from a technical, social, political point of view over the years to get us to where we are today.
1: And there's a lot of expertise in certain nations that have been ahead of the curve on this. I mean, New Zealand, for example, when when the British first arrived in New Zealand, they brought with them stoats and weasels and foxes and rabbits. And there are stories of British. Parsons who walked scattering the seeds of British plants such as bramble and dog rose into the landscape such that New Zealand today is one of the most altered ecosystems in the world and is absolutely heaving with invasive species. And a lot of the species that managed to avoid extinction avoided it because they were they remained in small numbers on some of the little islets and things around New Zealand that were free from invasive species. And, And New Zealand, therefore, was a pioneer in removing Invasive, So now has a national strategy for removing invasive species across the whole of New Zealand. We'll see whether that, that succeeds or not. Mm-hmm. Have you found that the organization has been able to draw upon expertise from New Zealand, let's say, or, or Ecuador, the Galapagos Islands, another place that's done a lot of this work?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we work very closely with both New Zealand and Ecuador. And um, I'm happy to say that we have two individuals on our staff that directly came from New Zealand Department of Conservation and gained a lot of the experience that they had from them. We are working with them in partnership on all sorts of things, everything from innovation to work on the ground to fundraising, and they're definitely a, a wonderful world leader in terms of making this a priority, both from a national agency perspective, but also from a community perspective. When you go to New Zealand, it's amazing to see, I stayed at a little B&B, and the B&B person was telling me all about his own individual efforts towards what they call predator free 2050 and the community and how they're working together to make this happen. Like, it's really amazing how well they've um, come together around this cause. Like, we want to bring back our native birds, they were telling me, like, you know, it's it's our heritage. It's it's pretty amazing.
1: And in contrast, places like Hawaii that have been so badly impacted that the forests have fallen silent. I saw an interview once on YouTube with an elderly indigenous lady from Hawaii who said that she grew up in a place filled with color and birdsong. And she's filled with a sense of of gloom and dread uh, each day living in a place now that has fallen silent. So it just shows how high the stakes are. Uh, One of the stories I enjoyed most in in the newsletters that you send out is a story of your work in the Aleutian Islands off the Western seaboard of North America, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. island known as Rat Island. And your mission to remove rats was so successful that it's no longer called Rat Island. And, right. and, and the recovery of wildlife has been dramatic there. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that story?
0: Yeah, this is a wonderful story. Um, this is an island. It's now called, I believe the correct pronunciation is Hawada Island. And um, that's its its native name. And this island was in a chain of several others, but it looked quite different from the rest of them, quite odd. And one of the things that set this island apart was that all the nearby islands were rat-free. This one was not. And the other islands had the you know large sounds of seabirds, and this one very much, uh, very little of that. They're a direct predator to these island species, especially the seabirds. And really what happened is the rats unleashed a cascade of disruption in the entire food chain. So they ate the shorebird eggs and the chicks, and they nearly wiped out all of the breeding populations of seabirds there. And the seabirds were the ones who were consuming the herbivorous seashore invertebrates, like snails and limpets, things like that. And these intertidal eaters were the ones that were keeping that in check, right? So when you change the entire cascade and we were able to remove rats in 2008 that actually changed the entire cascade of everything now you brought back the seabirds which meant that they could change the dynamics between algae and the intertidal ecosystems and so it's been renamed it's now flourishing amazingly enough within a few years they've got flourishing populations of seabirds they have tufted puffins recorded nesting there for the first time ever beautiful species and it now looks very much like its sister islands around it a really really cool change to see
1: it's interesting that you talk about the connection between land and sea this is a report that you've recently put out that shows the effect that restoration on land can have on the entire environment, land and sea, far around. How has that report landed and how has it affected the work of island conservation?
0: Yeah, no, thank you for asking. This is something that's super important and and something that really, I think, island conservation and many other organizations are starting to understand more and the research and academic world is starting to understand more. We need to be listening more to what I think all the native peoples who are on these islands for generations have known. It's like these things are interconnected and you shouldn't be thinking of them as separate. Islands and oceans are one ecosystem and we should be treating them as such. And so it was such a pleasure. I worked with about 18 other co-authors and I was lead author with Dr. Stuart Sandin from Scripps Institution of Oceanography And we looked at what are these cases of being able to remove the threats on islands of invasive vertebrates? And what does that mean for, in particular, the marine nearshore? And what are the impacts there? And it's incredible, some of the case studies that are out there and the changes that you're able to see, right? And it's really driven more than anything by what we call connector species. And these species are things like seabirds and sea turtles and seals and sea lions, land crabs, anything that lives at that interface between land and sea, they're bringing really, really important nutrient flows from land to sea. So think about a seabird. They're going way far off the coast, and this albatross is doing its fishing and bringing all those nutrients to land. And then they're letting those nutrients go through guano deposition and that guano was going into the soil, into the plants, and then into the nearshore environment, into the coral reefs. They're seeing things like 50% more fish in the nearby corals, where you do have places with lots of seabirds versus where you don't.
1: After the removal of the invasives.
0: That's right, yes. They're also seeing that um, corals grow four times faster where you have no invasive species, lots of seabirds, lots of connector species, and lots of nutrients. And that after bleaching, like huge issue, right, with, with climate change right now, after a bleaching event, when you do have those nutrient flows and those connected systems come back after invasives, they're able to recover more fully and more quickly after those bleaching events. So amazing things that can happen once we reconnect these systems.
1: These projects to remove, especially the smaller animals like mice or rats from a whole island, take a lot of planning and they don't always work. The British government funded a project by the RSPB, in which I believe Island Conservation was also involved, to remove mice from Gough Island. And these mice have grown large and and they have decimated populations of albatrosses and other seabirds that nest on that island. And it was a hugely complex project that was delayed by COVID and helicopters and piles of this, that, and the other, and teams camping on the island for months on end in the middle of the remotest part of the Southern Atlantic. And then, tragically, some mice were found on the island. How do you react to that? How do you maintain kind of perseverance? How do you mitigate against that risk?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question, right? And of course, it's heartbreaking whenever you put all of the blood, sweat, and tears into a big project like this and, and really um, hope that it's successful and, and it isn't. However, I have to say, things were getting very dire on Goff. You know, there were several species really on the brink of extinction altogether. And the, one of the reasons why that project moved forward at all was because it was very time sensitive to be able to provide some relief for those species. And even this year, while the number of mice dramatically dropped, they saw those species start to breed successfully again, some for the first time ever and in numbers they had not seen in ages. And so they, these animals have got a reprieve, and it's given them more time. So we can look for additional solutions, new technologies, other ways to do this better, Removing mice in particular is very difficult from islands and and golf project in particular was one that was a very challenging habitat to work in. And it's a very big island. It had a lot of things that were being stretched there. So I think it's just about when can we try again? And this next time will be successful.
1: Yeah. And a lot of the cost and a lot of the complexity is around getting helicopters to move up and down a kind of grid pattern and make sure that every square inch of that island is covered with the bait and so on. I saw recently a company which has figured out how to plant mangrove trees using drones. So they're heavy drones that follow a GPS uh, mapped route and they fire little baby mangroves into the soft earth beneath them. and And they've cut the cost of restoring mangroves in places like Bangladesh by like 90%. So can that technology be deployed in this kind of situation?
0: Absolutely. And we've done it in 2019 for the very first time in the Galapagos, we trialed just that, a drone that could help us to cut the costs of helicopters in particular, and of course, increase safety, reduce carbon emissions from helicopters, all of those good things that you get with drones. And it was successful. And that was a small pilot. So we've been working with um, some drone technology companies to deliver the sorts of products we need in drones to be able to carry large amounts of bait and to be able to use the technology that you just described, very specifically making sure that we cover every single home territory of a mouse or a rat with this particular drone. And so that's in the works right now. In 2022, we are able to accomplish two more projects, one in Palau and one in French Polynesia using drones. And we're hoping we can cut costs by 30%, emissions by 80%, like all of these things are going to get much, much better with drones.
1: It's not always rats and mice. I went when I was um, a teenager to the Galapagos Islands and traveled around some of those extraordinary places. And some of the islands at the time were grazed to nothing by goats. And I think there were several hundred thousand goats on the island of Isabella, which is a, a string of several volcanoes. And the tortoises that remained were not breeding successfully the vegetation was parched or non-existent and since then Isabella and several other islands have been cleared of goats and and one of donkeys um and also pigs so sometimes it's bigger animals as well. How do you go about that?
0: yeah yeah, so all of the techniques that we use are very specific to the invasive species that we need to remove right and the, the ones with hooves and the ones that eat everything in sight like goats and like pigs are some of the most destructive. So in the case of goats, it's mostly hunting is the way that we are able to remove them. And there's a special technique because it's very difficult to get to zero goats on an island. There's usually some that are very difficult to find. And so there's a uh technique that's called using a Judas goat, where you essentially put a radio collar on a goat. And because goats like to be with other goats, you're able to help find additional remaining individuals. And so, you know, working with the community there, that was a several year process to be able to remove the goats on, on those islands with amazing, amazing results. Like you you mentioned some of the islands there, the one that sticks out for me Is the the pin zone giant tortoise, right? Like there was no small baby giant tortoises ever able to survive on that island because of the invasive species for almost 150 years. So you have this aging population of tortoises that was ready to blink out. And then once the removal of invasives occurred, we were able to find nests of little baby tortoises popping out for the very first time. And now, today, about you know, 10 years later, you see all ages of tortoises and the whole population is coming back. It's like, this is why we do what we do.
1: And you're working across all of the Galapagos archipelago, which is one of the most extraordinary archipelagos in the world. Extraordinarily different. And the, and the origin of course, of Darwin's theory of evolution, because he went there as a young man and saw the changes that clearly had taken place in the different species on the different islands. And that's where it all came from. How much is there left to do in the Galapagos?
0: Gosh, there's still a lot to do in the Galapagos, um, especially on the rewilding front, right? Like, So we pair what we call the restoration, the removal of invasive species, the bringing back of the native vegetation with the reintroduction of these species to these islands, right? So a good example we're working on right now is one of the jewels of the Galapagos, which is Floriana Island. It has a community of about 140 people and endemic species that Aren't found anywhere else in the world, but there's more than fifty IUCN rest, red listed species on Floriana Island that are in danger right now, and um, the community there has really been suffering from losses in agriculture and in tourism, and they um, want to remove the invasives there and focus on ecotourism for their island. So we've been working with them for more than a decade to prepare, and this year. We'll be removing a whole suite of invasive species from the island. And then the plan is after that, 13 reintroductions of already extirpated species from Floriana will be able to come back in the coming years.
1: What kind of species?
0: Gosh, everything. Iguanas. Yeah, uh, tortoises, a whole host of of birds and finches, you name it. It's really exciting.
1: One of your stories that I've most enjoyed watching has been the story of Palmyra Atoll, which is a kind of tropical paradise in the Pacific. Pretty different from what used to be known as Rat Island. What did you do there, and and what's the the result been?
0: Yeah, so uh, Palmyra is another excellent example. So, working with our our partners, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and and the Nature Conservancy, we we're able to remove a few different species. The last of which were rats on on that island. And it had a, amazing repercussions. One was a thing we didn't expect was actually one of the species of mosquitoes that had come to the island were extirpated in the process, which was an interesting thing to see. But then this is another great example of seeing that change from ridge to reef, from land to sea and what can happen. So the native trees were really being kept to a very low level because the rats were eating the seedlings and the seeds of all the native plants. So that meant that there was very little habitat for the seabirds to use for nesting. Well, now that that has changed, now the seabirds have come back in full force. You've got way more nutrients going into the nearshore environment, and there's these amazing studies showing that that's also changed the number of really big charismatic marine species um, in the near shore environment are benefiting from that, right? So it's amazing to see. What kind of species? So land crabs, for example, the ones that live on the interface of land to sea, they're about an arm span wide. These are giant crabs that people used to never see before. Now they're flourishing, doing really well. And then in the water itself, you've got manta rays, Huge man arrays that are benefiting and spending a lot more time in and around Palmyra because of the habitat it provides
1: so there's approximately nine hundred thousand islands in the world and fewer than two percent of them are inhabited by people do you have any kind of idea as an organization how many of those have a problem with invasive species and and kind of what the opportunity is for restoring them with the backdrop that species around the world are going extinct now at a faster rate than in a very long time because of us. And so clearly we need to ramp these efforts up. We need every country in the world to take responsibility. What sort of mapping have you done?
0: Well, I know off the top of my head that there's estimates out there that of all the islands in the world, that there's approximately 80% of them that have rodents on them in particular. We've joked at some periods that sometimes it feels like we're just undoing everything that the pirates did during uh, their, their time on this earth they certainly spread them. But throughout humanity, we've been spreading species to places that they weren't before. You know, you said only 2% are inhabited islands, but 11% of the world's population lives on islands. So communities are being impacted as well as those species that you mentioned there, Ben, and we're working directly with these communities in, in many ways to get this work done. Island conservation, as I said, is a pretty small organization. And we don't Imagine we're going to ramp up to be a thousand times the size that we are today to try to address this issue. What we're really trying to do is, like you said, get every country, every organization that we can to understand the importance of addressing the threat of invasives so that we can get to um, strong rewilding on these islands and to try to give as much of the technical experience and expertise to the communities and other organizations and groups to be able to do this work, because it's going to take a lot of us to be able to address thousands and thousands of islands across the world.
1: And some of the world's richest countries do have lots of islands under their control. When you look at the the topic of of marine protection and and the establishment of highly protected marine areas around the world, um, just working with the British government has yielded Millions of square kilometers of new protected areas because the vestiges of the British Empire are little islands in the remotest parts of the South Atlantic, South Pacific, even in the Indian Ocean, Chagos and Ascension and Pitcairn and so on, St. Helena. And by pressurizing the British government to establish these huge marine protected areas we made a massive contribution to global marine protection. So surely a similar approach targeting the Netherlands, which has lots of offshore islands, the French, um, the British, the United States, New Zealand, you can knock great chunks of those 900,000 islands on the head in one go.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you know you bring up ocean protection. That's something that we're trying to really cross the boundaries of protection and restoration. These things should be done in tandem and be thought about together, right? So uh, there are islands that anchor many of the marine protected areas that have been established or are being established right now. Let's not forget about those islands and let's make sure that they're benefiting at the same time is one of the things we're after. And then I think, you know, with the leadership of a lot of these nations you just described on ocean protection they're also starting to show some initiative in in many places on island restoration as well. You know, really hoping, um, you know, New Zealand is moving forward on some work that they're starting on the subantarctics. South Africa has similarly said that they're going to commit some funds for the restoration of Mariana Island. I know that the French are working on Amsterdam Island, right? And so I think there's more and more progress moving forward What we're really trying to do, especially with this new initiative we have called the Island Ocean Connection Challenge, is to get these governments and organizations and partners to be working together so we can do more, increase the scale, the scope, and the pace of how we're getting island restorations done to meet this great need that you just said is out there, Ben.
1: So would it be right to say then that island conservation kind of has three tracks of work, in a sense. The the first is pragmatic. So go to the islands that are of greatest importance because they've got particular colonies of birds that are on the brink or whatever. Deliver an excellent project in those places to protect those species. And secondly, to demonstrate excellence, to show that it can be done. And thirdly, to advocate among the most powerful nations on earth that they ought to be ramping up these efforts themselves along the lines that islands conservation as shown as possible
0: yeah I, I think that's accurate. I would add another, which is that we are constantly really looking for the communities that are most impacted as well, and their natural resources, their special species, the ones that are coming to us and asking us for help, those go to the top of the list, right? We really are the ones that are helping them with their projects. We don't own islands. they They belong to them. So I think that first and foremost is instead of us picking the islands, they're picking them for us and we're using them to demonstrate what is possible and trying to gain more momentum through that
1: penny what's the weirdest invasive invertebrate species that you can think of that either has been removed or should be removed
0: <sighs> weirdest oh my goodness
1: i mean there were invasive foxes in the santa what are the islands of california
0: the channel islands uh-huh yeah, I was going to say there were Arctic foxes that were not in the right place. And yeah, that's the thing, right? You have these common animals or, or wonderful animals that really belong in some places, but don't belong in other places, right? So, coatis for example, do you know what a coati is? It's a little Absolutely. bit like a, a cross between a raccoon, maybe, and a fox,
1: it looks like a cross between a dog and a monkey. They're known as tejons in, uh, yeah, in, okay. in Spanish. Yeah. I once left a pile of bananas on my parents' bed in a hotel in Mexico. And, uh, and the Terrans or the Coates all filed in there to get the bananas so that when my parents came back from the beach, they were kind of rushed by a gang of Terrans trying to get out of the room as my parents tried oh, to get in. Oh my goodness! But so th- I can imagine those are highly destructive. And on yeah. Southwest here in, in, in the United Kingdom, there's an island that is overrun with hedgehogs, a hedgehog which is nationally threatened in its natural habitat on the mainland of Great Britain, but which is causing mayhem among the seabird communities of Southwest. Yeah. And, and, and this is, I guess, the last... Last question i'd like to ask you is what about the animal rights people so here in the uk the animal rights movement doesn't like creatures being killed even species that are in the wrong place mm-hmm. and which are difficult to remove any other way so how do you grapple with that issue you're killing stuff
0: yeah yeah well i mean first and foremost i guess i'd start with the whole reason we do this work is because we love animals right? I think if there was a way for us to protect these species and these animals without having to have any impacts on any other species, we absolutely would. But that's not the reality of where we are today. We remove invasive species in the most humane, the most cost-effective way as possible. And we really are focused on prioritizing those species that are about to blink out. We must make sure that on our watch that doesn't happen and if that means we have to prioritize the health and benefit of them over the health and benefit of a very common species that is found all over the world then we're going to do so in order to make that happen there's been several successes we've had with working with things like the humane society in different projects around the world to remove invasive species and that's been quite successful. I think there is middle ground to be had there. And certainly there are values that everyone puts forward ab- about animal welfare and about conservation that come to the forefront. But at the end of the day, we do this because we really care about those animals, especially those that are in most endangered.
1: Penny, you're a rock star. I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to chat to me. I'm so grateful to you for everything you and your colleagues do. And I'm so excited to do everything I can to be helpful to island conservation as an advisor in the coming months and years.
0: Yay. Excellent. I look forward to it so much. Thanks so much, Ben, for having me and for your work on rewilding for the world.
1: Of all the podcasts I've done on this series, I think the, the one whose projects I'm most keen to visit are those put together by Island Conservation because the recovery of these islands is just so dramatic once you remove the invasive vertebrates from them. I urge you to go to the website of Island Conservation and, and see for yourself some of the work that this extraordinary little group has been doing. If you're enjoying this podcast series, please give us a five-star rating. Please leave us a review. They, they help grow the podcast. Tell your friends. Be very grateful to you. Next time, I'm going to be talking to Stephen Brown, who is leading one of the world's most ambitious national rewilding efforts. And that's in the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, to be more specific, which has the goal of restoring a full complement of herbivores and carnivores, including the Arabian leopard, one of the world's rarest big cats, across great swathes of its landscape. Join us. Thank you.